it's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. 998-999-1000! Why did you start a podcast right now? Can I be done if we're doing one of these? You can have a break, but you're far from done making penance for attacking me. I, uh, I fail to see how having me do push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups and generally training myself and getting stronger, when the thing I'm in trouble for is fighting you. Well, you're not in trouble for fighting. You're in trouble for fighting and losing. And also for not introducing yourself to our listeners now. But this is like our 40th episode. Shouldn't everyone know me by now? It's our 40th episode, and you still haven't picked up that any episode can be someone's first? Gonna have to tack on some more pull-ups for that one. (sighs) Hello, listeners. This is the bikini. Satisfied? Never. That's why I'm always getting better. Just like Zero. Who? Damn, Harmony Gold dub. I meant Goku. Oh, right. Because this is a Dragon Ball podcast. How did you wind up saying zero? Listen, I'm not going to question the distributors of Shaka Zulu and how they came up with names for characters. That, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Well, we'll delve deeper into Harmony Gold, I don't know, someday. Okay, so what are we delving into today? You'll find out soon enough. In the meantime, I expect another thousand push-ups before Lord Frieza's medical evaluation ship arrives. Hey, if we're in tip-top shape, won't the medical examiner determine that we need to just stay here and assist with rebuilding? Which, by the way, I wouldn't mind. It's nice and dull. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that. Besides, we are elite warriors, Bikini. At least I am. Hey, I thought we had a good battle. (laughs) I was, uh, I was holding back. Didn't you liquefy and almost die? I, uh... I was just, uh, I was testing myself. Anyway, as I was saying, we're elite warriors and rebuilding is beneath our station. Hey, if we're elite warriors, then why are we in battle where, where we're needed? Not that I'm complaining necessarily, but it certainly seems like we could be out there putting down rebellions or fighting off those who'd seek to topple Lord Frieza and do it for, you know, maybe more peacefully or something, since we're pretty strong. You mean peacefully like what we did here? Touché. But also, hey, if we're capable of leveling an entire city, why not send us into battle instead of uncharted space? Lord Frieza knows how to allocate his resources. A city is in peril? He knows which fighters to send. An uprising is happening. He knows what garrison to dispatch. A threat has emerged? He knows who can handle it. We're tasked with coming across who knows what and being prepared for it. Besides, you keep saying you have this aversion to violence. Why would you want to be out fighting instead of occasionally just drifting around through space? I I may be averse to fighting, but I'm not averse to some good food and comfy beds and laying down my roots. You and these roots? Yeah, about that. No time for that. 
you're already getting too long of a break. Let's get into this week's topic so you can get back to your punishment. And this week we're going to be breaking down the anime once more, talking about, what is it, episodes 59 and 60? 60, yes. Episode 59 is called The Notorious Mercenary, and episode 60 is called Tau Attacks. In these two episodes, we are finally introduced to the great Tau Pai Pai. First, we have to wrap up Blue's storyline. Currently, Tau is negotiating his fee with Red. His going rate is 100 million zenny, but since Tau Pai Pai is celebrating his 28th year as an elite assassin, he'll cut Red Ribbon a deal, 50% off. What a guy. Blue interrupts the negotiation to give his report to Red. Despite being reprimanded for failing to retrieve a single Dragon Ball, Blue still intends to hand over the Dragon Radar. However, Red's order was to retrieve a Dragon Ball, not a Dragon Radar, and failure to fulfill his orders is punishable by execution. Red's feeling charitable. He'll spare Blue, if he can beat Tau Pai Pai. We cut to the land of Karin. Upa and Bora contemplate the Dragon Balls and ask if they can really do what Red Ribbon claims, which is grant a wish. Here we get an explanation from Goku about how he doesn't actually have a wish, and he just sort of wants to have his grandpa back. Truly, this child's heart is free of avarice. Goku asks about Karin Tower and the land of Karin, upon which lives a hermit who blesses climbers with holy water that amplifies their strength. Nobody's ever completed the climb. Wait. Then how do they know what was up at the top? Oh, wait, no, somebody did a long time ago. Good. Plot hole averted. <laughs> then again, nobody knows if that's true. And Bora's purpose is to guard the tower that no one has ever successfully climbed. And nobody's even sure if anything is at the top of. Got it. Back to Red Ribbon HQ. Blue and Tao Pai Pai face off. Tao states that he will kill Blue using only his tongue. They're given the green light and Blue makes the first move. Blue blitzes our humble hitman with a furious flurry, but Tao takes not. Blue blindly batters at Tao, who smoothly sidesteps into the weirdest wet willy I've ever witnessed. Bye-bye, Blue. We barely knew ye. Having now proven his skill, Tao Pai Pai is told of his target, Goku. All they know is that he's really strong and currently in Karin, about 2,300 miles northeast. They have a jet prepared for him, but instead he rips a column out of Red's porch throws it, and then jumps on top of it, and rides it 2,300 miles. Oh, and he's got a 30-minute guarantee. You know, like dominoes. We cut back to the current tower base, and Goku is eating. Shocker. Then decides that he's going to take a crack at climbing this tower. His reasoning? If I'm going to get stronger, why wouldn't I do it? He gets the traditional warning of how dangerous the task he's about to easily complete is. Wait, what's that? A bird? A plane? No, it's Tau Pai Pai riding his column to deliver your carcass, and anyone else's who gets in the way, in 30 minutes or less. But before the main event, we get a warm-up match between Bora and Tau, and it, uh, does not go well for Bora. And episode 60 kicks off pretty hot. Goku, angered over the murder of Bora, charges in to begin his assault only to be quickly swatted aside like a fly. Now, Goku takes a pretty harsh beating here, then he takes an energy blast to the chest, seemingly ending his life. Tao get grabs most of the Dragon Balls, and then pieces out to go find a tailor to fix his clothes. While he's getting his duds repaired, Red Ribbon HQ is very confused as to what's going on. Once Tao Pai Pai finds a tailor, he decides to check in, you know, because he's a... Yes, he's a very honest assassin, and he just wants to call in and check with them to make sure that, you know, everything's on the level. He explains the situation, and Red offers to go and collect the ball at Karin Tower himself, and they agree to meet in three days for the exchange. Meanwhile, Upa's burying the dead... But before he can finish off uh, covering Goku in some dirt, some Red Ribbon dork flies in to collect a Dragon Ball. He tries to pry it from Goku's cold, dead body, but Goku's like, I bet. Scares the crap out of this guy who thinks that he's like a zombie coming back to life. He runs off. Upa runs in to greet his friend, who he totally wasn't going to bury alive 30 seconds ago. Uh, and it's revealed that the Dragon Ball saves Goku's life. Afterwards, Goku takes a moment to remember Bora with a touching montage and then vows to revive him via the Dragon Balls. With absolutely no proof that this is even possible. Now he has to steal back the other balls from Tau Pai Pai, and the only way to do that is to climb the tower. Red calls Tau Pai Pai to inform him that Goku is still alive. Tau Pai Pai reiterates that he will take care of it in three days once his clothes are fixed. Our boy Goku has a time limit. Speaking of which, Goku is struggling to get to the top of the tower. He's hungry, he's been climbing for a full 24 hours, he's hallucinating, but he digs deep and continues upward. And that's where episode 60 ends. Yeah, that's a it's a f- great batch of episodes, kind of just two of them, right? But 
some of the best. Get, I'll just you say get it. Good humor. You get uh, some of the, especially like the fight scenes in this little arc are fantastic. They look really right. good. Uh, and just you get all around wonderful. You get one of the one of the most memorable moments in all of Dragon Ball, honestly, with the with the column. <laughs> Everybody loves that. I don't think I've seen a single person that's seen that and not gone. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is a, this is a. I feel like it was somewhat recently that we were talking about. We were like, oh man, these two or three episodes felt like they were five or six. These yeah. two episodes feel like they're like one. You know, it goes by pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's do what we what we do here and and dive deep and talk about. Tao Pai Pai, a.k.a. Mercenary Tao, which is what I called him because I'm a filthy anime dub watcher. I'm a, I'm a plebe like that. Boo, uh, hiss. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Chinese idiom that states, one mountain cannot hold two tigers. And to say that Tao Pai Pai lives by this idiom is to say all that we need to say. So, okay, thanks. Episode over. Uh, if you want more, I guess we can. He's based on the antagonists of a pair of Jackie Chan movies. Snake in Eagle's Shadow and Drunken Master. We're absolutely going to do a Drunken Master episode someday. But Snake in Eagle's Shadow has the same director, Wen Yuping, in his directorial debut. He'd go on to be quite prolific and work with guys like Jet Li and Sammo Hung and Donnie Yen and Michelle Yeoh. His work is said to be an inspiration for the way the Wachowskis came to approach the Matrix. Uh, and then the villain in both of these movies is played by Huang Jiang Li. He's another prolific worker with dozens of titles in his acting career. And though he is Korean, he plays a Chinese character. And his ruthlessness and mercenariness <laughs> inspire Tao. The, the long hair braid that he has is called a Bianzi or Bianzai. It's worn by Manchurians during their time in control of China, and it's imposed on Chinese men during the Qing Dynasty. Uh, I think that's pronounced Kang Dynasty, actually, like that. Uh, not to be confused with the Avengers Kang Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> as a, it's imposed by on the Chinese men though as a form of subjugation. I think we talked about that with with. Didn't we talk about like samurai hairstyles at one point? And how that was kind of originally imposed on them as like a, a form of you have to have your hair like that and that shows your subservience. Sounds familiar, yes. So when Toriyama is asked, though, about what Tao Pai Pai did before becoming an assassin by a detail-driven interviewer, he says he was probably an office worker before quitting out of boredom. So Toriyama's time as a salaryman has driven him to think that the lifestyle breeds assassins. Read into that what you will. <laughs> nice. So the English on the back of his clothing says, kill you, with an exclamation point. But what about the kanji on the front? Well, it stands for murder. So the message is pretty loud and clear. Tao Pai Pai literally means peach white white, so it's colorful, like all the Red Ribbon Army associates thus far. Uh, even though he's not officially affiliated with them. But as usual with Toriyama, he's doing a lot of co compare-contrast stuff. Peach White White is a cute name, and he's contrasting it against the man's vicious, ruthless, murderous personality. He said, quote, I wanted to use a name that would be a complete reversal of his image. A cute Chinese name, so I use this. I don't even know if it works as an actual Chinese name. End quote. Fantastic. It does follow some typical Chinese conventions in this style, so Toriyama accidentally succeeds in giving Mercenary Tao a functional, cute Chinese name. He also writes the name in the original manga in the same katakana that he uses for Shenron, so he's tying Tao instantly for his audience to ancient China. By possible happenstance, because Toriyama, Peach, or Tao part of his name, is also one of China's more sacred symbols. Again, we know Toriyama isn't extremely well-educated, but we're never quite sure how much he does or does not explicitly know about this type of symbology, either through cultural immersion or experience or whatever. 
The peach tree's wood in China is said to be capable of slaying demons. This is because the term Zhengguo is the Taoist ideal of self-cultivation and literally means true fruit. Over the centuries, as ancient Chinese artists attempt to draw a representation of this metaphorical fruit, they consistently use a peach as the fruit, and of course this winds up getting muddled over time until a peach is seen as a pure thing unto itself. The pie is white and the ying representation of purity. Doubling it and making it white-white means the highest level of purity. Obviously, Tao Pai Pai is anything but. Fun fact... In some dubs, he is erroneously called General Tao. The popular theory being that this is because, as we'll see with another character coming up pretty soon, the dubbing staff knew there were a lot of food pun names and assumed the character was named after General Tao's chicken, like the Chinese dish. So they they called him General Tao because they thought it was a, a food pun, not knowing that it was... like. They thought it was more of more of a generic food pun that kind of Americans were supposed to understand, and they uh, and they didn't understand that it was you know a Chinese pun on peach. So we get into this episode a little bit, and we talked about Blue. General Blue makes his comeback and his ultimate exit. He uh, he dies how he might have wanted in a way by having another man shove his tongue into him, and that's. <laughs> That's as blue as I hope we ever work on this podcast. <laughs> oh. oh, that was a double pun. <laughs> you could you could definitely read some sexuality into the fight between Tao and Blue if you want to get really Freudian with it and think of everything as a penis. But the important takeaway here is more so the escalation. Blue, who was maybe not exactly a match for Goku, but certainly up to the task of squaring off with him, has been easily dethroned as the strongest fighter by someone who uses a very similar style of brash egoism and bullying. And this becomes a theme and a trend in Dragon Ball then. A villain appears, and he's a certain type and sort of threat, and then their superior shows up, and he's all that, but much stronger, more powerful, and... Even his personality traits are like amplified to the to the umpteenth degree. I feel like Nappa and Vegeta is a pretty good example of that early in Dragon Ball Z. Where... I, I can see that. I would also argue Frieza and Cell. Even though they For don't sure. show up together, there's there's a lot of Frieza in Cell, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively. <laughs> the the Nappa and Vegeta thing, I'm thinking of like. Nappa shows up and he's very arrogant and very brash and ruthless and has no regard for other lives. And then Vegeta, this this guy who they've struggled to even knock down, Nappa, Vegeta one-shots him, even though he's obviously already been beaten up pretty bad. And then just shows you right there, A, he's so much more powerful than Nappa. He destroys this guy that they've struggled to even scratch. And B, he's so much less caring about other people because he kills his own friend. Yeah, I was going to say he's he's all of – like you said, he's all of the things that Nappa is. He's got a lot of ego. He does very little regard for other life. But then he's also, on top of that, this sort of cold, calculating person on top of everything else. Right. And that's that's very much what Toriyama is kickstarting here with, with Tao destroying Blue so easily. And then also, I think we mentioned during our Blue episode that the character is sort of this walking contradiction. His name is Blue, that implies sad, but he's this kind of bright character whose action takes place in bright tropical locales. He does then ultimately fulfill the promise of his name by having an unhappy end. So there, there you go. It's it's coming full circle for you. <laughs> the best part of this episode, as we mentioned, the pillar may have been inspired, actually, by a historical figure named Monk Zhijong, or Jigong, a Chan, Chan or Chan, I don't know, Buddhist, who in literary legends was said to be able to throw logs tremendous distances. And I think, like, predict where, how far, like, he'd be like, I'm going to throw this 50 kilometers, and it would go exactly 50 kilometers. 
Now, as we said time and again, it's unlikely Toriyama was aware of this guy, so if he was inspired by something, it's likely to have been a movie, but to date, there's no obvious connection to be made in any of the many, many movies that Toriyama has mentioned enjoying over the years. I still love that, though. I love you're able to throw something far enough to be able to ride on it, and you're able to jump far enough to be able to ride on something to catch up with something you've thrown. Because that's the flex. You do this. You do this amazing, like, godly thing, and then you go. Oh, by the way, I'm just going to jump on top of it after <laughs> I throw it. It's awesome. It's the best. The Dodan Pa that that he does when he shoots his Dodan, Dodan Ray or Dodan Pa out of his out of his fingers is a Shaolin Kung Fu move. It's in the move slash style of Yiji Shangging or one finger chan skill the book on chinese art of shaolin from 1934 says this technique will take a master so you have to already be a shaolin master it will take a master 10 years to learn you start by pushing heavier and heavier weights with just your finger until you could start flicking them with your finger and then your finger flick gets strong enough to move weights and things while not even touching them. Then you you concentrate that flick until you can move weights, you know, like the heaviest weights that you can move while touching it. You do it mm-hmm. while just flicking the air. Then you concentrate that flick onto candles, and you light them. Then you start lighting the candles through thicker and thicker surrounding media like paper and then glass and then wood until you eventually become focused and strong enough to blast a beam and ignite something through a tree from 100 yards away. So it's an actual thing that is written down in Shaolin art, fighting arts. Seems legit. I wish I could, like, Talk about a, a career that that I could have had, you know. Go I mean, back have, and just we'd have we'd have shown those chumps what was what. It's energy beams are basic. <laughs> Go back and just make up things that people can't do. <laughs> Be like, look, we can fly. <laughs> the name Dodanpa comes from a fusion of culture, as many things in Dragon Ball do. Dodanpa is a chant used by mich- by musicians to get in sync similar to like a do re mi fa sol la ti and the emphasis in when it's used as a musical chant is put on the don such that don becomes synonymous with a cymbal crash so you'd be like do dush pa do dush pa and even explosions in general too and then we see that in dragon ball toriyama often uses don to emphasize his explosive effects quite separately a poetry style known as doduitsu develops and influences culture over the course of literally hundreds of years until in 1961 a singer named mari watanabe releases a song called tokyo dodanpa daughter which is a mix of doduitsu style with a dodanpa rhythm but with the emphasis on the pa, not the don. This style is a mix of the dodo of doitsu and the ba of rumba, but due to a Japanese grammar rule, the b becomes a p, and the music of post-war Japan has a name and an identity, dodanpa. Now, Toriyama changes the katakana of pa to a different Japanese word for wave, that due to more fun gram rules, is still pronounced pa, so the whole thing is a wordplay. Language is fun and not in the least bit confusing at all. <laughs> Dodanpa then means explosive wave. Uh, it's more direct and immediate than Kamehameha, uh, signifying the difference between its users. And of course, Goku's survival hinging on the four-star ball uh, has some obvious symbolic elements with it being the representation of his grandfather and also being next to his heart. Uh, also, the blast goes through the Kamisenin symbol, showing that it was also Goku's training under Master Roshi that allowed him to survive even a muted Dodanpa attack. Uh, Goku saved by his two father figures, while unfortunately seeing Upa's father murdered. Also, the symbol has been blasted away, which kind of signifies that maybe Goku's about to get a new master. Maybe. 
And then Tao is calculating. This guy, he plans everything out with precision. He knows exactly how hard to throw a stone pillar to get it to land exactly where he wants, how long his assassination will take. He knows everything to to detail. When he comes across Goku then, who doesn't plan and whose chaotic nature ruins his plans, he's unable to adapt. We see that right away when Goku blasts him with the Kamehameha and he's like, you ruined my clothes. Rather than just move on, it's not in his plan to have had his clothes get ruined, so he has to take a three-day break. Spoiler alert, because he is so meticulous and doesn't have any room for variance in his plans, and Goku's this more kind of chaotic force, that's where he gets defeated. He he believes he stands atop all, and he's the world's greatest. It's, it's in his title. He calls himself the world's greatest assassin. So he thinks that he can just sit and wait because he's the strongest. He doesn't need to... to prepare anymore because he's already prepared goku meanwhile knows there's always a higher mountain to climb and he can always be better so tau plateaus while goku trains this is like another this whole thing with tau pai pai is another though less dramatic shift in dragon ball's style and tone it, it's even we're getting even further from gags and even more and more towards serious and es- ever escalating stakes and we've already talked a little bit about in this episode about what that is right you you bring up your character that has certain facets to himself and then the big bad is all of that plus worse i actually think we talked about you talked about how cell has frieza in him i think it's a pretty good example to go from like the ginyu force to frieza where the ginyu force the ginyu force is very vain right they're all about their posing and how they look and all of that stuff. And Frieza is very much that way too. That's that's a big part of Frieza's character. Frieza's character in the anime, by the way, obviously Lord Frieza, the real Lord Frieza, is not vain. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's right. But the real Lord but, Frieza is a kind, generous soul. <laughs> but yes, we see. You know, he's everything that like captain ginyu is to an extent in terms of his character and ego and character flaws just ramped up and i think cell even is that with like with the the androids you know and i I think all three of the android pieces 19 and 20 and 8 17 and 18 and then cell they all have this air about them of thinking that each one of them because they were at the time of their creation the the ultimate life form yeah they each think of themselves that way, right? And then so Cell is sort of the ultimate version of that. Well, and then you get the extra Toriyama bait and switch because we have the first two androids and then the second two androids, which are everything that he is plus some. And we think, oh, these are the ones that they're supposed to fight because these are the ones that Trunk recognizes. And then we get that last minute switch out of, oh, you thought those were the, the actual villains? No, this guy's the actual villain. Right. And he's even worse. Right. And then, and then, and especially with Cell too, because, and the androids, because like 17 and 18 have this, this, I don't know how you call it. We'll talk about it way more when we get to them, but they have this air of like flippancy to them. Very nonchalant, yeah. Yeah, that Cell also kind of has, right? He, when he does the Cell games, he's not like, oh, if you lose, you know, this is this is for anything. He's This is just so I can test out how strong I am, you know? Yeah. And then I, I also feel like we see this happen with Majin Buu himself within the character of Majin Buu. You know, he starts out as Fat Buu, and he's this this sort of unassuming this but powerful character right yeah and then by the time we get to kid boo he's even more unassuming and he is actually i think canonically technically he's weaker because he hasn't absorbed any other strong fighters but he is everything that fat boo was without any of the good bits to him where like the fat boo was he heals the blind kid he befriends mr satan gets fr- becomes friends with that dog yeah kid kid boo is just pure chaos 
and pure anarchy and can't be sure. controlled. And that makes him so much more dangerous because you can't ever pacify him. Makes sense. And to so, me. and so that's, we see that start here. That's, that's, this is sort of the beginning of that. And that goes through to like, I think we see that probably with, with Piccolo when he's first introduced, we'll have to maybe keep our eyes peeled for, for that. Definitely. So this is, this is, this is, one of those things where the show, the the show, the manga, whatever, the story changes so drastically that if you watch an arc that's done, say, towards the end of Z or, or throughout Super, and you go back and, and you compare them to, like, the Journey to the West saga, the Pilaf saga, it almost seems like two different shows. Yeah, and I was I was actually thinking that when I was rewatching these two episodes, I was thinking to myself, "Oh, this this is a lot more similar in tone to like what Z is going to become." Yeah, where it's... there's this this emphasis on like, "Oh, there's this guy that we can't immediately beat in a fight. We have to go figure out a way to become stronger." And that 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 kind of is sort of the 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 I guess the archetype for his storylines. Like that's that's. Like all of historians at yeah. the most base level, that's that's how they start. This is the first time that we really get that too of like yeah. presenting a threat that you can't beat, that you have to figure out how to train. You know, whether you're climbing Corn Tower or going into this room of spirit and time, the hyperbolic time chamber, one of those things, right? Yeah. There's other ways that they train to get stronger, etc. Yeah, this is like the first time we see that introduced too. And it's funny because all of this happens so gradually that if you do watch from beginning, you know, from the very beginning to the end, it's never at any point jarring. Like you never feel like, oh, they hit the hard reset button here. Yeah. And I, I think the, the the tournament arc is that really nice segue between the two. And it yeah. even introduces us to the idea that there are people that Goku won't be able to immediately beat with Jackie Chun. The only difference is that Jackie Chun is not necessarily an adversary outside of the ring. Whereas in this instance, if if Goku cannot beat Tao Pai Pai, that he's he's going to die and Red Ribbon's going to win. Yeah, and and every adversary that Goku has faced thus far, even Jackie Chun, who he technically loses to he is physically a match for it's always something else that prevents him from being their match right sure at least like i guess i don't want to say physically a match because that's sort of exactly what helps jackie chun win is that they are not physically stature a match and that's the in terms of strength he is a match for everyone he faces or more than a match with with jackie chun it's it's yeah it's the uh he's physically just not as big so when they get to the end and they are just straight up punching each other Jackie Chun has more leverage because he is just physically bigger that's it that's the only thing that helps him win when Goku fights like the the blob monster in Muscle Tower it's 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 not stronger than him it just can absorb his blows uh when he fights general blue general blue is not stronger than goku when they have finally have like their their hand-to-hand fighting goku is better than him although he's able to keep up it's his hypnosis technique that ends up being the thing that gives him an edge over goku tao pai pai is straight up stronger than goku when yeah, they first without, meet. without question, Goku has to find a way to get stronger, faster, better than he has been to this point. Versus, I feel like most of his post Master Roshi training has been a little more psychological, a little more mental, been more learning that there are some people who can't be reasoned with or bargained with or appealed to and learning that there are some just bad people and not that Goku necessarily like treats them any different ever but I think he sort of starts to become prepared for this kind of thing and we see this a little bit later on when we'll be talking about it in our next episode 
when he has his rematch against Tao Pai Pai and Tao Pai Pai begs for mercy. Well, at this point, Goku has seen General White or Commander White. What is it? But he's seen White and Blue both like beg for mercy and then turn around and backstab him. And so when Tao tries the same thing, even though Goku initially is like, yeah, okay, if you're serious, I will let you apologize. He's ready for that ultimate uh-uh thing. That sudden but inevitable betrayal. Yes. So we talked a little bit offline before we started this episode about some characters that remind us of Tao Pai Pai in other fiction. And the one that the one that we came up with that we both were like, oh, that's a good one. And it's not perfect, but Anton Shiger, played by Javier Bardem in the movie No Country for Old Men. Yeah. It's a perfect, like, like what made me think of it so much is in a couple episodes, we're going to see Tao get his new outfit from a tailor. Yep. And when he gets his new outfit, he, you know, tells this tailor, like, I think in the, I think in the Japanese, he tells him like, Hey, anyone you want me to kill, I'll kill. And the guy's like, I would, I just would, you know, can you just, I don't want to kill anyone. Can you just like, give me the 50 bucks you owe me? <laughs> and he's like, how dare you? And he, and he has this sort of awkward conversation with him and then kills him. It reminds me so much of when Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men walks into the gas station and flips the coin and slams it on the counter. And he's like, call it. And the guy's like, what are we calling it for? And he's like, just call it. It's a great moment. Oh, it's excellent movie. Excellent scene. And so that re- reminds me of like a Tao Pai Pai thing, right? You know, like this character who sort of seems unassuming to an extent, but then there's this air of terror to them. It's almost like a switch that they can flip where it's like, this is not just some affable, unassuming person anymore. This this is a genuine threat. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a good one. I think also, he, I think we had a really hard time with this because I I honestly don't know of all that many parallels, like the same sort of trope where it's like a cutesy name and then it's like a like a basically a, just a hired killer. That's the problem is is it's hard to think of, and we only posed this to ourselves, just kind of as we were just trying to come up with like a an a more open forum discussion topic. So we haven't been researching this, I wouldn't say, but it's hard to come up with characters that you think of right off the top of your head that have cute names and then are badasses. Like it's so easy to come up with like badass characters that also have badass names like Darth Vader, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) like those are just, those are just blatantly obvious, but then, Kind of coming up with like a uh, who doesn't sound like a badass, but then is is like a little bit harder, especially because I feel like it's hard to come up with parallels for a villain that's like that, right? Yeah, I was gonna it's, say it's this seems more like a trope that would be for the protagonist. Yeah, where the bad guys are the ones that assume that the the protagonist is not a threat because it, it just it, I. I don't want to say it's bad writing, but like it doesn't seem like it would be good writing to have a villain that nobody thinks is actually dangerous. Right. Right. And that's the yeah, like you know, you have I don't know, comic book characters maybe like Angel or yeah. even even like Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman's not the most badass sounding name on top of that she's a woman there's definitely a group of people in the world that would see her as a woman and nothing else and assume that she is capable of nothing because she is a woman right so it's it's easy to come up with examples of of women who have these sort or not women but hero characters who have these because i angels a male obviously but hero characters who have these sort of innocent sounding names who then end up being more than capable it's hard to come up with 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 villainous characters like that i i think of there's probably like a whole bunch of wrestlers that you could apply this to 
both as heroic and villainous. There's there's a pretty good example just as a as a their 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 shtick defied what they were supposed to do. From a, a bunch of years back, there was this character named Brodus Clay, and he would come out to like disco music and then wreck people. And that was his character. That's like a fun, like subversion type of thing. And that happens like all the time in wrestling, like because there's always face turns and heel turns and things like that where, you know, a character comes out. And even for a little while, what they'll do in wrestling is when a character, like a lot of times when they first turn face or heel, they'll still come out to their old entrance to make people think that like what they did last time was just a fluke and maybe they were having a bad day or a good day or something. And, and then they'll drop the big bomb that no, I'm like a bad guy. Now I think like one of the biggest examples of that kind of in general is like when Hulk Hogan turned heel. Oh yeah. And joined the, you know, he comes out and everyone's like, yeah, Hulk Hogan. And then he like turns heel, but like that's, it's a, it's a, tropey thing in wrestling because you're always coming up with that's the thing about wrestling is you're always coming up with characters that are supposed to seem one way and be another right now in aew the biggest heel in the company is mjf maxwell jacob friedman and his character is that he's like a blue blood rich boy and so from that perspective he seems like he's not a threat but then he is like he's constantly beating people up now even his name actually doesn't sound it's it's not a cute name. It's not a cutesy name like Peach White White. Yeah. <laughs> but it is not a threatening name. It is like a preppy white boy name. You know, Maxwell Jacob Friedman. It's just his initials. Um, like, it's not even... Okay. Triple H was like that for a while when he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley and he came out as a Connecticut blue blood and he was supposed to be, like, rich and better than everyone. <laughs> So that might be a decent because he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley for the longest time, and he was like this. I mean, that's that's definitely a blue blood name right there. He was this like aristocratic kind of character, yeah. The only other one you came up with it was Littlefinger, but yeah, that's that's less like physically threatening though, and that's yeah. more that's more if you don't pay attention to what he's doing, he'll essentially steal your kingdom out from under you. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but just a different method i guess yeah it's it's he's got he's got like some similar personality traits to him as tau pai pai in being a little bit more measured oh yeah definitely like that whole the whole planning and yeah uh, you know having uh his secret machinations behind the scenes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's it's hard to think of any that are like that true dual threat, you know, we all, cause we always think of like, like even in comic books, you know, you think of your, your, your villains, like your, your jokers sure. and Luthor's scarecrows and Riddlers who fight Batman on a, or Superman or whatever on a more mental level, right? It's more of a, it's more of a psychological battle sure. and then you've got your characters who fight them physically you know your your banes and your clay faces and your doomsdays and your your dark sides and yes a lot of those characters are also psychologically combative too but again like dark side that's not like he's not like a cute character <laughs> like, yeah we're talking like somebody that can go toe-to-toe with superman like doesn't ma- I don't think it matters how cute you make that character. It's st- he's still going to be a threat, and everyone's going to know it. What about um? See, in- what about Mister Mixelpitic? Mixel- you familiar Mixel- with that Plick? character? Yeah, Mister Mixelpitic. Yeah, uh, something something like that. I could never get it right, but yeah, the- <laughs> you're talking the little. Uh, I don't. Know, I guess he's like an imp from like a parallel dimension. He uses magic to get around. Yeah, he's a constant pain. Yeah, that, that's probably pro- a, a, a decent one, or or any of the any other villains that have more of like a, I guess like a childlike look to them. I'm trying to think if there's any others off the top of my head. Now I don't know if this character was was exclusive to Batman the animated series, but there was that the little girl 
who looked like a doll, but she was like had a developmental oh, thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember her name though. But that that would tie into uh, the movie Orphan, where oh, yeah. the murderer is this adopted girl, or we assume is an adopted girl. Turns out she's not just a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to spoil it for anybody, but yes, yeah, things are not as they appear in that movie. So. I guess you could maybe make an argument for also like some of the Transformers, both Autobots and Decepticons. Because some of them turn into, you know, cassette players or, like, mopeds, and you wouldn't necessarily take them as a threat, but, I mean, any any regular person against them would get messed up pretty quick. I can see that. I'm looking up, like, like Superman villains just to see if there's any others that, that jump out at me, and, like, they're all named, like... I mean, other than the obvious ones, I'm even looking at, like, the more lesser-known ones, and they're all yeah. named, like obsession and cancer and (laughs) (laughs) i would almost say for like from like spider-man's rogue gallery you could maybe make a couple of arguments doc ock maybe just because the name is ridiculous but he's probably one of spider-man's you know most terrifying villains but then there's a lot of there's also a lot of comic book villains that go a little bit too far in the the not really a threat category right Um, like arcade yeah, or I was thinking like uh, Shocker is kind of funny because it's a decent name. His powers are pretty cool, but like he the always gets trounced. Yeah, the joke is kind of that he always gets trounced. Yeah, you know, you know who aside from his name, I feel fits the mold decently is Kingpin. Yeah, I could see that because there are a lot of people who think he's just some fat rich guy that that is powerless on his own i think the big problem with spider-man villains is they generally all tend to have kind of pretty cool names yeah that's that's the drawback (laughs) of comics is everyone's got a decent name usually yeah they like they don't usually have cutesy names like the villains have like if you put peach white white in a marvel comic they're gonna your editors are gonna yell at you that like that name's not gonna sell copies what are you doing yeah i mean even that's you look at like characters who are like him and they're like the Mandarin and yeah, stuff like that. That might be racist of me. I hope it's not. <laughs> well, if it is, then the MCU is also a little, little bit uh, on that spectrum. Then <laughs> They they did not do so. themselves any favors bringing that character back uh, in Iron Man. No, no, not having Ben Kingsley play him. Oh, he's not. Not him, really. Whatever. Yeah. But it's... I mean, they, they. I think they cleaned it up pretty well, and they did a much better job with the character in uh, Shang-Chi. But yeah, Iron Man 3 was not a not a good look for that one. But so, yeah, that's that's Tao Pai Pai. I mean, that's it, it is kind of a unique character. I'm sure someone out there is probably, like, getting very frustrated with us right now. And they're like, it's so obvious. It's, you <laughs> yeah, know, but like... there's probably whole lists that we're not even thinking of. But it, it doesn't... There's not like a big character in the lexicon of th- things that I know that falls very obviously into this. Like even even going into kaiju stuff, I can't think of too many kaiju that don't have badass sounding names. And then I, generally, I, I just thought of a really good one just now: Walter White from Breaking Bad. Oh, because he's white. We're on why, this now. Why? Why are we playing the race card unnecessarily? <laughs> no, but that yeah, that's a Walter White that has that has. I'm sure there's like not, one listener right now, right now who's just freaking out. Like, oh my god, they finally said it. It's not. It's not a cutesy cutesy name, but it is certainly unassuming, and it does have sort of that intentional or not kind of symbology behind it right of white means kind of purity and pure sure and and then um, the same thing is is uh he's jesse constantly, pinkman constantly uh underestimated they don't think yeah. he's, a, he's a real drug kingpin and time after time he proves that he will he will do some terrible things to maintain his lifestyle yeah and then you've also got jesse pinkman that's a that is a pretty cutesy sounding name pink and white yeah there you go so, hey, we did it. We, we did it! 
Yeah, I was I was gonna say even in even in kaiju, like I feel like the only kind of cutesy kaiju I could think of is Mothra. I was actually gonna and, ask if maybe Mothra would count for that. And that is that is sort of an unassuming name, you know. Mothra just sounds like it's a giant moth, and then it kind of is just kind of a giant moth. Also, yet another episode with a Godzilla reference. Oh, we're gonna work it in always. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's Tao Pai Pai, a uh, a unique antagonist in fiction. Do you think someday I'll be able to chuck a pole through the air and ride it? I know you won't at your current power level. Ah, crap. That's right, recruit. Hit the deck and get back to push-ups. Break's over. Damn it. Why would that medical frigate hurry up? It'll be here before you know it. Now, 2,000 this time. Superset! <sighs> One, two, three, four... Will the medical frigate arrive before Bikini finishes? If it does, will I allow him to break off, or will we sit here for however many hours 10,000 push-ups takes? Wait, 10? You said 2,000! Does Bikini want to go for 20,000? 11, 12... Do I even know how many push-ups I want Bikini to do before I'm satisfied? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum! This is gonna take forever. Final Form is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 